You are tuned to the Nahum Siegel Network on jmandtheam.org and nachumsegel.com. Stay tuned for JM Sunday with Matis Weingast.
This is JM Sunday on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Matis Weingast. Today is the uh, 10th day in the month of Av, 5775. We uh, observe Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av, which was yesterday. We observe it today in terms of the, the uh, restrictions of the day and the outlook of the day, and the uh, kinos of the day, and the prayers of the day, as we recall the destructions that have befell the Jewish people over the millennia, and in particular the destruction of the two temples that occurred thousands of years ago. We are here with you on uh, JM Sunday Live. It is also the 26th of July, 2015, and uh, it is uh, is overcast outside in the New York, New Jersey area, 75 degrees right now, going up to a high of 92 with afternoon thunderstorms expected, and going down to 73 degrees with thunderstorms. In Jerusalem now, it is 92 degrees and uh, sunny. And uh, expected to go down to 65 degrees and clear tonight. What you hear in the background are actually the sounds of Israel at the Kotel right now live. There have been people throughout the night and day, seven hours ahead there, at the Kotel, getting as close as possible under normal circumstances for uh, for what one is able to do in these days. We are going to uh, have a different format of the show this morning. Of course, no music except for opening and the Hatikva at the end. We uh, are going to go right to uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine and uh, a, uh, a topic from his Tisha B'Av selections. This one is the destruction of the first temple. We won't be joined by Rabbi Goldwasser this morning as he's doing a kinnis for the community this morning. Uh, we will, however, at 7.45 be joined by Rabbi Elchan Weinbach, who's our fast day consultant here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And at 8.15, I'll be joined by Rabbi Harry Moskov, 
who is the uh, author of the Ark Report. He'll be talking about the shiur he's giving later today in Israel on the three temples, the two that we've had and the one that we expect. So we're going to go now to uh, Rabbi Beryl Wein. The destruction of the first temple is the name of the... Um, uh, is the name of his topic, and uh, we'll join back with everybody when it is time to speak with uh, Rabbi Achanan Weinbach at about 7.45. The destruction of the first temple, which is the event that uh, I'm going to discuss with you tonight, has to be viewed not only in a political and diplomatic and... Uh, military and national sense, but it has to be viewed in a uh, cosmic uh, spiritual sense, which is how Chazal, how our rabbis looked at the matter, and therefore were able to lend to it a uh, an aura that uh, not only made it uh, special, if one could use that word, or made it uh, something to be remembered, but they uh, pointed out that it was a change in nature. It's not just a change in, uh, in society or in political power in the world. It's not the destruction of the Roman Empire, the fall of Rome. And it's not uh, the uh, destruction of Berlin. It's not just that the Jewish people were defeated, but that it is compared to a... Uh, change in all of nature, a change in all of the world. And we'll see that in certain uh, certain ideas that the rabbis uh, have told us that I wish to share with you uh, because of the fact that uh, it has, uh, I believe, a uh, clear insight into uh, the Jewish view of history generally and certainly the Jewish view of the uh, destruction of the temple. The facts of the matter are, relatively speaking, simple enough. Uh, the uh, Novi Yermio had warned all of the years that the Jewish people were living, uh, the kingdom of Yehuda was living in a false sense of security, that somehow they felt that they would be able to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, against the power of Bovel, and the Jewish people would be able to sustain such a rebellion. They deluded themselves to think that Egypt uh, would protect them. They said, uh, much as you hear in the news today, that Egypt needed Israel. Though a great power needs a small power. Small powers like to think that way, but in the reality of uh, real politic, uh, the great powers don't need the small powers at any time. And uh, they deluded themselves to think that Egypt... Uh, would uh, rather fight Bovel uh, north of Jerusalem than to fight it on its own borders. Uh, Mitzrayim was not willing to do anything like that. Mitzrayim was perfectly willing to allow Bovel to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the kingdom of Yehuda and to uh, attempt later to come to its own accommodation, which it was never really able to, but they were not willing to spill one drop of Egyptian blood on behalf of the kingdom of Judah. The other delusion was that somehow Nebuchadnezzar would forget about them. He would allow the rebellion to go unchecked. Uh, 
he would allow the rebellion to uh, take its natural course and that the uh, he was bu he was busy with other things with more important things with bigger matters and therefore he couldn't be bothered by such a uh, small event as a little country uh, that had previously been a puppet of his now asserting some sort of rule it was the same type of delusion if we want to put it in modern uh, uh, in a modern frame of reference uh, Czechoslovakia in 1968 what difference does it make to the Soviet Union if uh, the uh, system in Czechoslovakia changed if it became more relaxed, if uh, Dubček took power, what, what, what was the problem? Or Hungary in 1956, or Poland today. Uh, there is no reason to, uh, to fear any of that. And because of that, so uh, they felt certain that Nebuchadnezzar uh, would not expend the personal and national energy necessary to put down the rebellion. Uh, throughout the history of humanity, uh, small countries that have mounted such rebellions have always had that in the back of their mind, that somehow they weren't worth the effort of the large country to put the rebellion down. We'll see that in the time of the Second Temple, after the destruction of the Second Temple, when Bar Kokhba made a, uh, an initially successful rebellion against the Romans, he also uh, deluded himself to think that the Romans weren't going to send extra legions and make a great effort to put it down. It just wasn't worth it. History has shown us that that is a, uh, a profound error. And the king of Bovel was not allowed, would not allow Yerushalayim to slip out of his orbit. And he would not allow Tzitkiyo to breach his oath of fealty to him. And he came with his whole army, and he came to put down the rebellion, and he came to put it down with a vengeance and with a cruelty and with a finality. Uh, not only to teach the Jews a lesson, but to knock out of the minds of anybody else in his kingdom the idea that somehow you could cross Nebuchadnezzar, you could cross the Babylonian Empire, and nothing would happen. Well, he was going to make certain that you knew that something was going to happen. So the facts of the matter are that in the spring of that year, uh, I've discussed with you uh, on a much earlier tape at the beginning of the history series, a question of the dates, the, uh, the dates that are involved here. But most historians agree that the year we're talking about is the year 586 before the Common Era. And in the spring of that year, Nebuchadnezzar came from the north, and he invaded the, the outposts of Judah, and by the early part of the summer, his army had encamped around the city. And his strategy was the time-honored strategy of the of the, of the uh, stronger army: a siege and attrition, just to wear the enemy down. And he brought his siege machines, he brought the lines of the siege closer and closer. And uh, in the Tanakh it is recorded that on the ninth day of the month of Tammuz, the walls of the city were weakened sufficiently that the Babylonian army was able to invest the walls and come into the city. 
The second uh, Churban, uh, the walls of the city uh, buckled on the 17th of Thomas. And the fast day that we commemorate is that of the second temple, not of the first temple. In fact, after the destruction of the first temple, when the Jews were able to return 70 years later and rebuild the temple and rebuild their government, so even Tisha B'Av was canceled. Even the fast day of Tisha B'Av was canceled as a national fast day. It was uh, restored with a vengeance, unfortunately, after the second temple. But the ninth day of Tammuz, which is not a particularly joyful day on our calendar, is not the day of the uh, of the dis- of the walls in the first temple. It's the day of the walls being uh, destroyed in the second, bre- breached in the second temple. So he uh, his army arrived, and the, under the command of Nebuzaradan, his uh, general, who was uh, a fearsome person. His reputation for cruelty and butchery went before him, and his army took hold in the city, and within a month, they had destroyed all pockets of Jewish resistance. And the Jews who could fled. Uh, Tens of thousands died in the uh, siege, in the uh, hunger and pestilence, and by the sword and by fire. Uh, thousands of them fled. Many of them attempted to flee to Egypt, to the south. And many of them were allowed to flee by the Babylonians who then just waited for them and herded them together into giant slave camps uh, where they would transport them into the exile into Babylonia. Our rabbis tell us that uh, on the ninth day of Ov, <coughs> The uh, at sunset of the beginning of the ninth day of Av. Again, here we're talking of uh, of the first temple. Uh, the uh, Babylonians purposely set fire to the building. Now, uh, the second temple was even more fireproof than the first, but the first also, to a great extent, was a building of stone and of marble. And uh, should not have burned easily. But apparently the accelerant that was used to set fire was of such a nature that it got the fire so hot that even the stones burned. That the building collapsed in the fire. And it burned the entire day of the ninth of all as well. Our uh, tradition is, according to the Talmud in the Gemara Tainis, is that the first base of Migdash was destroyed. Um, uh, the fire began on Motsoi Shabbos. In other words, Tisha B'av was on a Sunday. And that the fire began at uh, the, the end of Shabbos, that uh, as night fell, and that the uh, base of Migdash burned all day Sunday, and it was uh, destroyed completely. In its destruction, uh, many of the artifacts of the Beis Amigdash were captured, and many of them disappeared. Uh, the Talmud tells us, and we read in the Megillah of Esther, 
that the Hashverosh had inherited when the Persians, con- the Persians and the Medes conquered the Babylonians, they inherited the museums and the treasure houses of the Babylonians. And amongst the booty that they inherited were kalim of the Beis Amigdash, were utensils of the Beis Amigdash. Cups, uh, goblets, uh, uh, all sorts of gold, uh, all sorts of gold, uh, golden objects which they preserved. These uh, items are uh, referred to the kalim, mikalim, shonim, it says in the uh, Megillah. Then we read those three words with the uh, melody of Eicha to indicate that those were the utensils that were used by Ahasuerus, and he used them for the banquet that he invited all the Jews to attend. And because he had to have kosher uh, food and kosher utensils, he took the utensils of the temple, and then you had the irony of a generation of Jews uh, participating in a banquet honoring Ahasuerus, the Persian emperor, by drinking from the utensils of their own Beis Amigdash, which was destroyed and the utensils were captured. One of the many ironies of Jewish history. In any event, the the, uh, destruction of the temple was complete and the destruction of the government was complete and the destruction of the country was complete and the Jews were taken away into exile. That's the story, that's the simple historic fact of what happened. But uh, to uh, say that is not to understand what happened. (coughs) And certainly not to be able to deal with it in the uh, context that Jewish history and that Chazal have always dealt with the destruction of the Beis Amigdash. That is, as I mentioned before, in a cosmic fashion. Let me give you a a few ideas that I want to discuss, and uh, I think it will help make the matter clear. First of all, you had a complete, uh, unbelievable thing happen, that God destroyed his own house. That God, so to speak, if one could use such a phrase, God contributed to what, in effect, was a... uh, denigration of God because uh, the uh, Beis Amigdash was uh, in existence for over four centuries it was world famous it was one of the wonders of the ancient world everybody knew, knew that the Jews were different everybody knew that the Jews were monotheists in a world of paganism And here, the uh, god of monotheism, so to speak, allows himself to be defeated by the pagans. He allows Nebuchadnezzar, who is a uh, pagan ruler, and the representative of all that is evil, uh, to somehow triumph and burn down God's house. Now, that's one of the great questions in history. That's the same type of question as uh, the Holocaust uh, raises. It's the same type of question that that Eov, that Job raises in, on a personal level. How does God let that happen? Where is God to defend himself? 
<coughs> and no matter what the Jews were, and we're going to discuss, I'm going to discuss with you the uh, the the negative attributes of the Jewish people, which led to the destruction of the temple. But no matter what they were, they weren't worse than the Babylonians. So why should the Babylonians win? Why should God allow his own house to be destroyed? Now that is a uh, tremendously difficult philosophic matter to deal with. And the Churban made that matter real. Now that one of the reasons, you see it in the words of all of the commentators to the uh, Tanakh, one of the reasons why the Jews never took seriously the prophecies of Yeshayahu, let us say, or Yirmiyo, or Micha, or any of the other prophets who uh, time and time again foretold the destruction of the temple. It isn't that, that it was a surprise to them. For uh, at least 150, if not 200 years, uh, they had been constantly warned that it's coming, that the temple will be destroyed, the Jewish government will come to an end. You're all going to go into exile. They had been told that the words that appear in the Chumash and the Tochecha and the terrible predictions of the troubles, that those words are literally true. It's going to happen. Why didn't the Jewish people believe it? Well, first of all, the nature of a person is that uh, we are, uh, even the worst pessimist is by being human, an optimist. And... Uh, the Jewish people thought that it was perhaps hyperbole, it was uh, exaggeration, it was poetic license, or it wasn't going to happen to them. You know, it's going to happen a hundred years from now. It's a little like the national debt. We all know it's going to plot, but as long as it doesn't plot while I'm around, you know, so well, who cares? You know, meanwhile, I'm driving my car and I have my house and, you know, and America's America, so, yeah. It's very hard to sell people on the fact that they have to preserve something for their grandchildren or for the next generation. People aren't going to stop driving their automobiles because of the ozone layer because a hundred years from now it's going to be hot and the, and the country will be... No, people don't think that way. The mere fact that we are mortal and we know we are mortal and we know that our mortality is limited uh, at the outside to a century... So if I tell you, you know, 350 years from now, it's going to be a disaster, and no one will be nervous about it. Chazal comment that that was uh, one of the reasons why Noah didn't have much of a following either. He said, 120 years are going to be the mob. Oh, 120 years will be the mob, you know. 120 years, Chicago Cubs will win the pennant. That's not a problem to us. It's not relevant to us. And therefore, people don't listen. So even those that were willing to listen to the prophets felt that it's not going to be now. Yeah, there's no question that the Churban is going to come, but it's not going to come now. But the main reason why they didn't listen is because they said God cannot afford it. So to speak, the Jews had God blackmailed. How can God do that? We're the only people he has on the world. And we at least officially subscribe to his brand of monotheism. And we at least are uh, 
you know, we're the, we're the best that he's got around. It could be, uh, you know, it could be that we're only C plus, but it's but it's better than nothing. And this temple has got not only God's name on it, His presence, Kaviochel, is there every day. There are regular miracles in the first temple. The miracles were apparent to all. The uh, the uh, the candelabra never was extinguished. The uh, fire on the altar always crouched like a lion. Uh, all sorts of miracles. Uh, and in Pirkei Ovis, we read of the miracles that exist in the second temple. So God is there. So how the uh, God isn't you know God isn't going to be counterproductive. He's going to allow his building to be destroyed. And therefore, to a certain extent, we can do whatever we want, because what's he going to do, right? It's like the, uh, the son that's working in his father's business. So the son can embezzle and cheat and not show up on Monday mornings and do a lousy job and everything, because what's the old man going to do, right? The, the name of the company, you know, it's Jones and Son. What's he going to do? Going to kick him out? I mean, what? He's got him. Well, that's how the Jewish people felt about God. They felt that they had him. And because of that, therefore, uh, the destruction of the temple was a great philosophic shock to the Jewish people. And it, uh, in a uh, very perverse and uh, different fashion, uh, you have to understand that the destruction of the temple and the survival of the destruction of the temple was a triumph of the spirit of the Jewish people. That the Jewish people didn't walk away completely. Uh, that, uh, they, that they looked at it the way they did look at it in terms of self-improvement and in terms of continuity and survival is a testimony to the great faith of the Jewish people and to their deep philosophic insight because on the surface uh, lesser people would have been more than happy to write the whole thing off and forget it and which would have been the end of the Jewish people which if the rules of history were followed would undoubtedly that undoubtedly would have happened so that's the first point we have to realize the a cosmic philosophic problem raised. Now we were dealing with a different God. Until now, you know, we always knew that, you know, that God meant it and God punished and God did this and God did that and you didn't trifle with God. But we never dealt with a God that would burn his own building. And our rabbis say it in their inimitable fashion. You have to listen to the words of the rabbis in the Talmud, not just what they say, but how they say it, the nuance. The Talmud in Brochus tells us that what does God say every day? What does God have to say about it? Which is always the question of the rabbis. Everything that happens in this earth, so we know what the New York Times has to say about it, and we know what CBS News has to say about it, and we know what we have to say about it, and you know what the guys in the mikvah Friday afternoon have to say about it. And the guy's Shabbos between the parshas, you know. We know what everybody has to say about it. But the ultimate question is, what does God have to say about it? What does he say about it? So the rabbi said that. He said, Oy lebonim, woe to children, shebi avonoseim, that because of their sins, hechrafti as basi v'sorafti as hecholai. 
that I destroyed my own house and I burned down my own temple. So the rabbis did not avoid the issue. They met it head on. God destroyed his own temple. God burned down his own house. How can you make somebody do that? Well, that gives us an understanding of the power of sin. It gives us an understanding of the dimension of rebellion that exists within man. And the rabbis therefore compared it, uh, not in an unlikely fashion, but compared it to the destruction of the world at the time of the flood, of the Mabel, which was really the clue to God's, and is the clue to God's behavior. So there also, how did God, it says in the Torah, that God said, Nichamti, uh, the, the, the Torah expresses itself in such a term that God expressed himself that I'm sorry I created man and who needs the world and you know and let it rain what do you mean let it rain I mean you I mean, you set the whole thing up that the world is so complicated it's so uh, the, the, the laws of physics of nature of ecology of biology of botany uh, it's just mind-boggling. What do you mean, let it rain? God said, let it rain. That's it. It's not worth it. Without man, it's not worth it. There's a purpose to the world. The purpose of the world is man. Without man, who cares? Well, that was a lesson. That's a lesson that's burned into the psyche of man. And now there's a lesson for the Jewish people. God doesn't need a temple. God doesn't care about his reputation, so to speak. And God doesn't care about his house or anything else. If the Jewish people behave in such a fashion that they are really not my people and they take me for granted and they take history for granted and they, they're not... They're not at all attuned to what's happening in the world, so then, you know, so who needs it? So then it's only sticks and stones and bricks and mortar. That's all destructible. So what? And that's a uh, profound, profound revelation to us. Not only that God could do it, he did it. Not only did he do it once, he did it twice. Not only did he do it twice, but in lesser ways, he's done it many times to us. That, that should give the Jewish people some pause. Because we, uh, you know, I always have this feeling, I don't mean to be political, even though I am, but you know, people say, uh, never again. What? We're not going to let it happen. Those are, you know, that's whistling past the graveyard. Because it's not up to us, never again. What guarantee? What, what, if you, if you gave every Jew in the world an Uzi submachine gun, and I'm certain there are now enough Uzi submachine guns in circulation that you could do that, it wouldn't stop never again. We all know that deep down in our heart. And we know that man uh, can destroy himself and destroy the whole world. doesn't take much. In our time, it takes very little. It takes two, two fingers on two buttons and it's all over. But that's an, an awesome realization. 
to live in such a dangerous world, especially if one is a Jew, to live in such a dangerous world. But it is the Churban, more than anything else, that is impressed upon Jewish history and the Jewish mind, that reality. And because the reality is so frightening, we always tend to ignore it. We always tend not to deal with it. I think that that's part of the uh, mystique, if I can use that word, regarding Tishabov, is the fact that Tishabov, it's not just a day of mourning, it's a day of such terrible reality that that's what causes the mourning. You know, the, uh, the famous Rebbe of Kotsk said that there really are no fast days on the Jewish calendar. He says the two fast days of Tishabov and Yom Kippurim, he said, Yom Kippur, who wants to eat? Everybody, it's, it's, you're such a spiritual person on that day, so who wants to eat? And Tishabov, he said, who can eat? Right? If you realize what it is, you have no appetite. That's really what Tishabov is. Tishabov came, the Churban came to point out to you what, you know, what the reality really is. And not what the uh, delusions that one can convince oneself of are. That's, that's really not, not, that's really not productive for us. So that's one point. Another point is that, <clears throat> The rabbis saw that the Jewish people themselves caused the Churban. It's not a hard and fast rule in history that the Babylonians have to triumph over the kingdom of Judah. Now, uh, good old uh, Karl Marx and his buddies in the 19th century sold Western civilization amongst all the other garbage that they put upon us, the idea that there are rules of history, inflexible, inexorable rules of history, and that the individual under no circumstance can change those rules, and that we are just pawns. Now, if you think about it, that justifies, you know, sending 50 million people to the gulag, and it justifies starving a hundred million Chinese uh, because it's, uh, you know, it's the wave of the future. You can't stay in the way of progress. It's got to happen. And if it's got to happen, then, you know, I'm just helping it happen. I'm not doing it. It is uh, the, the idea of the Western world uh, in the last 150 years that there are historic forces that create these cataclysms and holocausts and disasters really acquits us of all responsibility. That's exactly what everybody, you know, it's not my fault. Right? I only was taking orders. I'm only doing what history says. And that's what allows us to be such murderers. Because there is no individual guilt or responsibility. We are all acting under a force. Like the weather forecaster that predicts a tornado or a hurricane, he is not guilty when the tornado comes or the hurricane comes and kills innocent people. He, uh, you know, he's a scientist. He told you it was going to come. So, too, the nature of the view of history is that all of these things are inevitable. It has to happen. 
The big have to devour the small, the weak have to fall before the strong, and that there are forces in history and civilizations rise and fall, and that's it. And that, in effect, if we uh, follow the logic of Western civilization to its illogical conclusion, which a lot of people do, Western civilization is doomed. <coughs> the United States and the Western world generally is no different than Rome or the Holy Roman Empire or the English Empire or any other major power that has existed in the world. The most we can look forward to is being a second-rate country. That's if history will allow us to survive. But otherwise, we, we may even disappear. Wouldn't be the first time. And that, I think, goes uh, also to explain part of the innate pessimism which exists in the Western world. The Western world is a very pessimistic place. If you have any doubts about it, just read the newspaper every day. It's just a very sad, pessimistic place. You know, now it's, it's a hot summer, so, you know, the, 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 so they all say that in 200 years the polar ice caps will melt and goodbye. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but, you know, the, 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 the trend of thought is always pessimistic. And that's built into us by this uh, feeling that the age of reason and enlightenment gave us. The Torah came to say the opposite. The Torah has a different view of history. History can be altered. History can be changed. It can be changed by one man. It can be changed by one act. It can be changed by one people. What happens is because we are the ones that caused it to happen. We are not guiltless observers uh, that are caught up in some great mob scene, which is called history. We are the participants. We are the players. We're the authors. We can do whatever we want. And therefore, the Churban Beis Amigdash, the destruction of the temple, occurred because of the behavior of the Jewish people. The Jewish people brought it upon themselves. They could have prevented it. They could have prevented it even at the last minute. They could have prevented it. But they chose not to for whatever reasons. And our rabbis list as the three cardinal reasons for the destruction of the first temple, the three major sins of society, paganism, the lack of faith in God, the lack of, of any allegiance to, a, uh, to the higher authority, to the creator that has fashioned us. Paganism uh, need not be translated only in terms of idols. It's not just uh, Zeus and Apollo. You know, paganism uh, takes on many different forms in society. Wealth, greed, uh, all sorts of injustice are all reflected in the ideas of paganism. Because we're not responsible to a God. And paganism also represents the fact that God is like man. And the Torah came to say that man was created in the image of God. So in all the mythologies of all the pagan religions in the world, from the eastern to the western to the northern religions, the gods behave like uh, men and like bad men, like spoiled, rich, bad men. 
they fight among themselves, they kill each other, they steal, they steal each other's wives, they, they, they do terrible things. Because the mythology has portrayed the God as man. And the Torah came to say that man has to make himself as God. Mahu Chanun, Afato Chanun, God is merciful, you have to be merciful, God visits the sick, you have to visit the sick, you have to try and imitate God, the great concept of imitatio Dei, of imitating the Creator. So that sin, that was, that was a terrible sin, doomed to destroy the Jewish people. Then the second sin was Shvichas Domin, that it was a society that placed little value on human life, which is another uh, horrendous view of, uh, of man, which in our time also, you know, human life, life is cheap. And we're inured to it. We become immune to even the, I count, I knew I was going to lecture tonight, so today. So in the two and a half minutes that I prepared, I listened to the uh, to the news. So in the city of New York today, there were eight murders. Eight murders and five people uh, died on Sunday in a fire that was set that they think was that was arson. Yeah, so yeah, nothing. I'm I'm waiting to hear the baseball score. This guy's telling me about eight guys who got to be one of us hearts mere, you know. Why is it my business? Because we're immune to it. We are absolutely immune to it. The human life. And if that's true by us, in the Western world where we uh, at least uh, pride ourselves on some sort of civilization, in other societies it is far worse. I once read a statistic in a National Geographic magazine that in Calcutta, India, there are 300 people that die every night in the streets. If you multiply that by 365 days, my math is not good, but it's a big, big number. And yeah, that's it. That's the way it is. And the acceptance of that type of situation, acceptance of, uh, we, they just finished, uh, I don't know if they finished, but uh, they're taking a breather in the Iraq-Iran war, right? million people killed in eight years, Yama. And this, uh, this uh, madman that's running Iran, see, he says it's the most bitter pill of his life that he has to stop the killing. Like to keep it going further. Why? Because that's that's because human life doesn't mean anything. Causes mean more. Everything means more. In the Torah, nothing means more than human life. And the instances when human life can be taken are very limited, and have to meet certain very exacting standards. And uh, because of that, therefore, when human life is taken very easily so then uh, again is a reflection on society and finally our rabbi say the third sin was that of sexual immorality which again is the <clears throat> the loss of understanding of the role of people in the world and of the role of the human body and of the necessity to uh, 
appreciate the grandeur of the person instead of the instead of making out of the person a, what, a little more than an animal. So when they had that, those three things together, and they had it together for a long time, it isn't that it just happened. And those were the ills of society about which the prophets complained over and over again, and the Jewish people turned a deaf ear. So then... Uh, the Chorban was inevitable, not because it was inevitable due to historic forces that were at work. It was inevitable because of the behavior of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people can and did do something about it. At least in those matters, there was some improvement. In the Second Temple, for instance, paganism was not as popular, murder wasn't as popular, and even immorality, which is the most popular of all, was not as popular. They did do something about it. The famous statement from Rav Cook uh, that the British, uh, the British uh, Governor General, or High Commissioner, Lord Stars, said to him that uh, he, uh, he doesn't see any improvement in civilization over uh, the thousands of years. So uh, the uh, British uh, General had an office that overlooked the valley of Gehinom, the valley of Hinnom outside the walls of Jerusalem. And Rabbi Cook pointed out to him, he said, you see in that valley, he said, uh, thir uh, 26, 2700 years ago, my ancestors took children and burned them to the idols. Took their own children and burned them to the idols. He says, that we don't do anymore. So there is some improvement. It may have taken us 2700 years, but at least with that lesson we learned. And the uh, idea, therefore, that man himself could do something to improve himself, has to do something, but the Churban made that real. The destruction of the temple made that real. Another idea about the destruction of the temple, which is, <coughs> excuse me, again, part of this idea, is that a change in nature occurred after the destruction of the temple. Just as a change in nature, according to many of the commentators, the Ramban and others, occurred after the Mabel. The Ramban says uh, in the Chumash we see that man became carnivorous. Animals became carnivorous after the Mabel. The nature of human beings changed. The nature of nature changed. Well, after the Beis Amigdash also, Chazal say, for instance, that the blue sky was taken away. There is no blue sky anymore after the Churban Beis Amigdash. Can't see really the blue sky anymore. I say very strongly that uh, certain pleasures in life, including physical pleasures in life, uh, marital relations, etc. The rabbis say that from the Churban Beis Amigdash on, that was taken away. The enjoyment of it was taken away. It became uh, less enjoyable, more mechanical. And the rabbis in their wisdom said that the only ones who retain the joy of it are those that do it illicitly. But it was taken away. It doesn't exist anymore. Our rabbis tell us that certain tastes in fruit and vegetables, and that's before they managed to have the tomatoes taste like the cartons that they come in. 
but just doesn't the taste was taken away. The world changed. That was the message. The churban therefore was not just a churban for the Jewish people. The world changed. God, so to speak, withdrew. And that's how the rabbi saw it. Previously, God had a house and he lived there, so to speak, right? If, uh, it will take a bad example, but uh, something that perhaps will give us some focus on the matter. Let's say you live on a block, and on that block lives a, a great, wealthy man, a very powerful man. So the block is a, it's a different kind of block. First of all, you know, they, they plow the street first in the snow, and the garbage guys always come. And, the, uh, and that everybody takes care of their lawn because there's such a nice lawn next to it. You live in Tobacco Road, right? Everybody's a slob, so after a while it gets to you too. Well, let's, uh, again, as a bad example, but that's how the rabbi saw it. You know, their bonus show and God was in the neighborhood, right? He lived there. He lived in Jerusalem. He lived in Israel. He lived amongst the Jewish people. He lived in the world. So if he lived in the world, so it was a different world. It had to be a different world. A world where you could uh, every day see a physical manifestation, Kaviochal, of God's presence. And now God withdrew. God, they moved out of the house. Wrecked the house, left. So the block is not the same. And it's never going to be the same. Until and unless, you know, you're able to rebuild that situation. Now, rabbis therefore said that the second temple never equaled the first temple. The same feeling never came back. <coughs> we'll pause here in uh, Rabbi Wine's discussion of the destruction of the first temple that you've been listening to here on JM Sunday. My name is Matis Weingast. Today is the 10th day in the month of Av, 5775. We observe the um, the day of the ninth of Av, the those things that are associated with the ninth of Av, the fasting and the special prayers and the other things that we don't do, we refrain from on the ninth of Av. We do those or we don't do those today, the tenth of Av, because of course yesterday was the ninth of Av actually, and on Shabbos we do not have uh, outer trappings, if you will, or outer indications of uh, of mourning. And although uh, we can keenly feel the destruction and certainly the lack of a base hamigdash now, uh, Shabbos is some is an entity in and of itself that is there to uh, to brighten us and to give us joy. And at the very least, to temper the outer, the outer uh, uh, showings of mourning. So today, for all intents and purposes, is the observance of uh, Tisha B'Av. And uh, it is uh, customary, one of the things that's customary is that we do not greet people when we see each other. We do not have that sense of joy and, and uh, say hello to people when we see each other today. Therefore, I will simply introduce our first guest this morning, Rabbi Elchanan Weinbach, who is the official fast day consultant for uh, the Nachum Siegel Network and JM and the AM. And I will 
Thank Rabbi Weinbach for joining me this morning. You're welcome. Uh, the uh, the the day we were just talking off the air for a moment, and I, I found it interesting that uh, there's a discussion, and you can enlighten us on this in the uh, I think it's in the Gemara about what day should actually be commemorated as uh, publicly for the destruction of the of the temple, whether it's the ninth of Av, where uh, certain events occurred that began the ultimate destruction. Uh, or the tenth of Av, when most of the actual physical destruction you know, took place. Do you do you commemorate uh, when when a fire started? Do you commemorate when something started to be knocked down, or do you commemorate when most of it is gone already, and you then see that it's no longer there, and then you feel that it's no longer coming, uh, it's no longer going to come back anytime soon, and. Uh, Perhaps you could shed a little bit of light on that and, and anything else you wish in terms of what this day means for us today, thousands of years later. The Gemara has this discussion about whether or not it should be observed on the 9th of Av when he spoke or when the enemy set fire, as opposed to the 10th of Av when much of the fire was burning and uh there are a lot of perspectives on sort of understanding why it is that the decision is to go with the ninth of Av. The um, what's remarkable is it's not about whether the building was standing or not, whether it was destroyed or not, and therefore I guess you might the Gemara might be inclined, Chazal would be inclined to go after the tenth of Av because that's the day when it went from standing to really destroyed. But it's really about on the ninth of Av, it's about the enemy being able to have its way in the base of Mikdash. The enemy that's the day on which the enemy has taken over the base of Mikdash. The base of Mikdash is now completely vulnerable the enemy has entered in and can do what it chooses. And it was the divine protection and the invulnerability of the Beis HaMikdash, which is what we relied on. And once that's gone, once you've got the enemies running around uh, with torches and starting to set fire to it, it's over. It's over. It's not about the building. It's about our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the fact that God is protecting the building and that it's God's home. Once God lets people into the house, the fact that the house is burned down or not burned down is not the relevant point, perhaps. It's really about whether God has turned away and you know left the door open, allowed them in. And so perhaps that is why we generally observe on the 9th and not on the 10th, but both days are appropriate as days of mourning. This is why in a in most years when the fast is observed on the 9th of Av, the aspect of mourning, which had been going on for days already, but the, abs- the, the um, aspects of mourning like uh, washing clothing, getting a haircut, eating meat, drinking wine, those things, that remains until Chatzos, until midday of the 10th, even when the fast is observed on the 9th, in recognition of the fact that the 10th 
too is a day of mourning. Uh, this year, however, um, we observe on the 10th. We fast on the 10th. Um, and uh, because, again, it's, a, it's an appropriate day of mourning, and uh, fast has been pushed off because of, because of Shabbos. Um, I'd like to uh, I'd like to go back, if, if I may, to the Mishnah which you brought up last time about the various tragedies that occurred on Shivas of Thomas and on Tisha B'av. Of course. And uh, let's let's refer back to the ones on Tisha B'av. Actually, I'll read through the ones on. Uh, I'll read through the whole Mishnah. It's um, Perik Dalad in the Sechus Thomas. Chamisha Devon Eros Avosinda B'Shivas of Thomas the Chamisha B'Tisha B'av. Five things befell our forefathers on the 17th of Thomas and five on Tishbov. The Shivas of the Thomas on the 17th of Thomas and Shtabu Haluchos. The Luchos were broken. The Luchos, the first set of Luchos that Moshe came down with from Harsinai were broken. Uvatala Tumid, the daily sacrifice which had been going on for hundreds and hundreds and many, many years and generations uh, was interrupted. There was uh, no time of being able to be offered because of the siege on Yerushalayim before the destruction of the first base of Mikdash. The Hofkar the wall of Yerushalayim was broken through, specifically in the second base of Mikdash on the 17th, and the first base of Mikdash was earlier. The Seraph Apostomus is a Torah, Apostomus Harosha burned to say for Torah on the 17th of Thomas, the Amit Salem Hechel, and set up an idol in the Hechel. Now to Tishabov. On the ninth of Av, it was declared on our forefathers in the generation that came out of Egypt that they would not enter the land of Israel, that they would have to turn back and wander for 40 more years. This was a result of their rejection of going into Eretz Yisrael out of fear at the time of the spies, the incident with the spies. The Chorah of Habayis Borishona the base of Mikdash, the first base of Mikdash was destroyed with Vashniya and the second. Both Batei Mikdash were destroyed on the ninth of Av. The Nilkadah Beitar, subsequent to the destruction of the second base of Mikdash, there was the rebellion of Bar Kokhba, which ended tragically. The great ending battle was at Beitar. Beitar was captured. It was a tremendous tragedy, uh, a tremendous amount of bloodshed at that time. Nechoshohair and the Temple Mount was plowed over by the Romans after the destruction of the second base of Mikdash, which uh, is a way of um, disgracing a place and showing that it's no longer no longer in existence and no longer relevant. Uh, they plowed over the city. So those are the five things that occurred on, uh, on Tisha B'av to the Jewish people in history. And again, we see this phenomenon that history is not linear as the way that we generally think about it, and, you know, we talked about uh, last time this idea, you know, July 4th this past year, the United States was uh, 200 and whatever number of years old. Uh, now I'm trying to think of a number in my head, I guess that would be 239. Um, but uh, that just means it's 239 years later, the 4th of July, we choose to mark it because it's a good way of marking our independence, and it's important that we have such a thing. So this country marks its independence, and their fireworks, etc. But nobody thinks that some other independence is more likely to occur on the 4th of July in 2015, and more likely to occur than it would on the 10th of July. 
of 2015. That's not the case when it comes to Jewish living and Jewish uh, Jewish history. We really function in more of a uh, an upward spiral. So that year, the, the spiral, the rotation of the spiral is the rotation of the Jewish year and specific dates and times in the year. Uh, something major that occurred in the previous year reverberate in future years. So to start with a simple example, the month of Nisan is always considered a month of Gula. It's always considered a month of redemption. Even though that redemption happened thousands and thousands of years ago, the character of God redeeming the Jewish people is stamped upon that day. Uh, the, same, the same can be said, obviously, of the tragedies of today, of Tisha B'Av. You see the same phenomenon. The Jewish people rejected Eretz Yisrael, rejected going into Eretz Yisrael um, for all the complicated reasons. But uh, that established the ninth of Av as a day of tragedy, the destruction, the destroying of the tablets on the 17th of Thomas established the 17th of Thomas as a day of tragedy. And every year as we progress, yes, it's a year later, it's ten years later, it's a thousand years later, but as we work our way through the spiral, if you look at it from a vertical point of view, looking down that spiral from a vertical point of view, it is all over again the ninth of Av. And it has that character, that flavor to the day, if you will. And uh, this is true throughout the Jewish calendar. We uh, we recognize a reality of a spiritual structure to time as well. And that time is not linear; it's progressing, uh, but it's progressing in a in a spiral sort of way. And that uh, you know, God willing, uh, as it progresses upward, we get closer and closer. Not only do we repeat days of joy and days of tragedy, but we get closer and closer to an ultimate redemption where the very character of time, the very character of the universe changes, and days like Tishabov will become Tishabov will become a moed, as it's referred to actually, ironically, referred to in Echa, Tishabov will become a moed once again, will become a Yom Tov once again. Its character will change, and the Jewish people will finally know redemption and the peace from their enemies that uh, we crave so much in the spiritual, really the spiritual rebuilding of the Jewish people and the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash. It is, uh, as well known, there's there's the thought, the idea that Mashiach will be born on Tisha B'Av. Uh, every year we look towards uh, towards that happening. Uh, we, uh, we lament it when it doesn't happen and another year goes by during the course of the year, and uh, I would dare say that very quickly we forget, uh, maybe that's the way we deal with things, but we, you know, we kind of forget, Tisha B'Av comes and goes. Um, fortunately, Rosh Hashanah, you know, happy occasion, beginning of a new year, is upon, will be upon us soon, uh, And uh, but during the year we are reminded in certain fast days and certain learnings that... Uh, of, of what happened, and and more importantly, or kind of importantly is the right word, but more particularly, every single day we, uh, we 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 mention the destruction and we long for the return. Uh, Tisha B'av is like the culmination of that day that we really have to put everything in perspective. But we really think about it every single day. Uh, everybody looks mm-hmm. to, uh, to you know, remembers this every day and looks to a a, a new build, uh, you know, a new new. Um, a new time every single day of the year, every single prayer 
reminds us of this. It's a collective, uh, it's a collective psyche of the Jewish people uh, that's been around for two thousand years. It's never been forgotten, uh, and uh, that probably is why, uh, among uh, other things, why when, for instance, uh, in, in the the founding of the modern state of Israel, if you will, the uh, and particularly the sixty-seven uh, war and the uh, arrival at the Temple Mount and uh, you know the famous uh, pictures, the videos we have, the sounds mm-hmm. of that was like a, uh, a sudden, uh, almost a release of uh, of joy that had to be kept in because we didn't have anything. We still don't have it. Right. It wasn't at that time that it was suddenly rebuilt. We know that, but it gave a hope that hadn't been there for thousands of years, literally. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned, by the way, the Kotel, and that it gave us, you know, some hope and some symbol, because uh, I, I just want to make mention on Tishabov in particular, that we do well to remember, you know, we all go to the Kotel, and it's great, we can go to the Kotel, and they've, they've dug out some tunnels, and there's a nice area to dive in, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we do well, especially on Tishabov, to sit, if you will, on Harazesim, overlooking the temple, and much as perhaps the Jews did at the time that it was burning, and to realize when you look at it that that is such a small fraction of an outside of a wall with no real access to Harabayas, where you know that's it's it's not too soon to celebrate. The Kotel is uh, you know almost. You know, to some degree, we celebrate the Kotel, and and we should. We have, you know, at least access we can get to the Kotel. We can get back to some small place where we can touch some part of what was the base of Mikdash. But ultimately, we have to be sitting with perspectives, if you will, from Harazes and looking down, that we really have nothing. The Kotel is just a tiny fragment, and the base of Mikdash... You know, sat well above that and was much larger, of course, and, and, and we don't have any of the functions of the base on Mikdash. And, and the Kotel is wonderful and it's a place to go and it gives us some sense of this is the place where Jews gathered and dominate, but it's just a tiny fraction of what it meant to have a base on Mikdash where Jews could gather together for a sense of unity and a sense of davening and all of Claudius Raul was part of, of the base on Mikdash. I mean, it's just a, a thought for Tishabov that, you know, what uh, what we have is still such a tiny fraction. You know, we say nachem. In Shimon Esri, we'll say nachem today. And we talk about Yushalayim being disgraced and being unsettled, et cetera, et cetera. And there, there are some who've actually, you know, within, uh, within the halakha community, there are some who have said that that should be amended somewhat, right? I mean, we're there. Sure. Yushalayim isn't sitting with no residents, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, yeah, that's all well and good. But the reality is that uh, we do well not to dampen the sense of mourning too much because we have something like the Kotel or we're able to live in, uh, you know, Yushalayim. With, we still have limited access. We still have, you know, religious... Uh, we, we, we don't have religious... Uh, the, the type of religious access and the religious service that we want on the on the Beit Hamikdash in the slightest degree, and we do well to remember that you know not not get sort of uh, 
sort of roped into right. this. Uh, we've got the hotel. We've got Yerushalayim. We don't have the. We don't have the Harabayas. We right. don't have Yerushalayim. We have a wall that was built to protect the Harabayas by somebody. Uh, it's uh, a ret- you know, it's at a some retaining, point. In time. It's, it's a retaining wall. It's a retaining wall. wall. Right. It's, I'm, I'm it's like, you know, celebrating the fact that, you know, if you've got a retaining wall on your front lawn, you know, and your house burned down, it's like, oh, but i got the retaining right. wall. Right. I mean, you know. it, it's, it's, I, I just thought, that my thought crossed my mind when you said this. It's, it's like you're given a, a, a beautiful gift that's in a box, and you don't take it out of the box. Or, if you lose the gift, you still keep the box. They're, you know, I guess people would do that if they somehow lost the gift and still had the box, they you know, keep the box there until they could replace the uh, the precious gift that's in it. It's you know, same thing. We're yeah. we're looking at the yeah. box. We're looking at a picture of something. Uh, right. If, to some degree, we're celebrating the fact that we still have the UPC code. That's great. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, today is a day that they, again mentioned there are certain restrictions, including the restriction generally of of learning, because the idea of learning uh, Torah in uh, in all its uh, shapes and forms is um, is joyous, is supposed to bring joy. Uh, so we are we limit ourselves, and as you mentioned before, the Gemara and Tanis, which is one that uh, is acceptable to to learn today, uh, and uh, we, you know even that is is limited. When we, as I mentioned at the beginning, we don't say hello, we don't greet each other. It's not just a, you know like in a house of mourning, but there's a reason behind it. It's not the be all and end all of saying the hello and. You know the hellos. It's that it. We should then take it one step further and think, why is it that we are not simply greeting a, a fellow person that we see? And it's because of this. And it's supposed to to get us to to feel this depth of um, of of mourning and loss. Uh, if people have time there and, and are able to, certainly again the descriptions in the Gemara uh, of what happened at that time. Uh, if someone is a Versed uh, well enough, versed in, in Josephus to be able to look at some of the um, descriptions. There's a lot of uh, minutia. We we have a lot of information, historical facts of what actually happened then, and it's fascinating to read. It's you know we mm-hmm. we say the temple was destroyed. The you know the the the, the armies were there, but there there's minutia that we know of what happened. Uh, there are records of what was you know. Street by street, it was each wall. It was the fights back. It wasn't that the, nobody fought. There were zealots who oh. who fought against it, this, and, and there was a lot of it, military. It took, Romans, you know. yeah, it took the Romans from I don't think it's Jaffa. I'm trying to remember where they can. I'm trying to remember the name of the gate, the side, the gate that's on the side where the Romans entered Jerusalem. But it took them three weeks. Right. There was actually another. A, Really, not very far. Right. We talked about this last time. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, it was quite a, it was quite a, quite a struggle. Right. And people who you know certainly know the area now know exactly where they were. Some mm-hmm. of the, you know, obviously the the walls, some of the structures are are still there. Very interestingly, you go to the, I think it's the southern area of the, um, of of where you know the archaeological work is done, and there's an area of stones from the. Wall which which were knocked down, they're still there. You mm-hmm. can see the mm-hmm. uh, the the marks of the burning. I mean, when when the, when we say that the temple was burned, you know, obviously uh, there are certain areas that were made of rocks and uh, those were destroyed. Mm-hmm. But you see the, um, the 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 burn marks from right. uh, the fires that were there. It was two thousand years ago, and you you still you still can see this. Uh, I I, uh, 
I like to, you know, look at history as you do. Uh, for those who think, well, you know, who want to say, you know, some of these things, uh, did they happen? Didn't they happen? You know, what do we know? Even among the uh, the Romans, you know, that there was a series of coins that yeah. were um, that were yeah. minted for many years following the destruction of the second base of Migdash by Ves- Vespasian. Judea Captor. Yeah, Judea Captor. Right. Right, very good. Uh, it was was issued to um, commemorate what uh, Titus, Titus had done beforehand, and it depicts right. and this something. Had been, um, this had been a particularly difficult war for the Romans. They yes. had to call up a tremendous number of reserves. It was a particularly difficult war to the point um, they really they struggled. They struggled, and again in Bar Kokhba also. Right. Um, they, they really struggled in these battles. Absolutely. So. I want to wish... Uh, you and your family uh, an easy fast the rest of the day. Uh, meaningful, also, meaningful, meaningful fast. I, and if anybody, also, I was going to mention if anybody has the time, they want to take a look. If they're not in Israel right now, uh, you can find live uh, images of the Kotel, what's happening right now. I, I saw it this morning, seven hours ahead. I saw it last night mm-hmm. when it was mm-hmm. early in the morning there, and you see people there. It is a bit uplifting, so I don't know if it's the right thing, but you, when you do see thousands of people there, it does give hope. It gives hope that if we're ready for something, uh, if it's the time, we'll be ready for it. And the, the, there are enough pe- there are enough people there, if you will, who are ready for this and want this. Let me, uh, yeah, if I can make a recommendation as well, I uh, find yes. particularly meaning year in and year out just because. Uh, well, let me see what it is first. But uh, vayou dot org, mm-hmm. Rabbi Sihar Schweinreb, every year. Uh, this year he did from Eretz Yisrael. Um, does an explanatory keynote, which he he does a brilliant job of weaving together various pieces of uh, Holocaust literature that he's come across, or helping you understand what it means, the deprivation that they suffered. And you know, one year he did something that was particularly remarkable to me about um, what does it mean that they were starving, mm-hmm. and what, what does starvation do, and um, tied it into the Holocaust and the studies that were done in the Warsaw Ghetto because the Germans systematically were starving the Jews. Um, but just, uh, he's, uh, I found him particularly inspiring every year, and the broadcast from last night is available at OU.org, um, as well as previous year's broadcasts. And uh, just, you know, something that I can recommend to people who either aren't making it to shul or, you know, whatever they're doing at their shuls happens to be over already and they want something else. Um, it's really, he's a... Uh, it's a remarkable voice uh, within our people and uh, very, very profound. I recommend it very highly. Absolutely. Uh, coming up right after uh, this, uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Rabbi Harry Moskov, who is uh, the author mm-hmm. of a book called The Ark Report. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, some of his works, but he's giving a shear in Israel tonight at about 6 o'clock uh, local time there on the three temples, the two we mm-hmm. had and don't have. And the third one that uh, we we know about, I think, is it the Yecheskel uh, that uh, describes the third base of Migdash? Uh, I'm not right, sure which some... third one he's talking about. There right. was a book that the... came out a while ago called The Third Temple Revisited. Right. During right. the time of the Barcopa Rebellion, they uh, set up shop in the base of Migdash and were actually doing some of the avoda in the base of Migdash. Right. Right. Well, we'll find out. Uh, we'll find out. He certainly uh, has written <laughs> some very interesting things on the. Search for the uh, the Teva 
and uh, what we know, what we don't know now. Uh, so it should be interesting. Mm-hmm. And for those of you in Israel, uh, he'll he'll be there at six o'clock. We'll find that information. Where, as I always ask, Rabbi, where can people reach you if they wish to get in touch with you and uh, find out what you're doing these days? Certainly welcome to reach out to me at my email address, which is E J Weinbach, like Elchanan, E J is in J, which is my English name. Again, I wish you and your family a meaningful fast, and hopefully next year uh, we'll be talking about the uh, Beis HaMikdash that is being built, if not already built. Amen. I can say thank you for joining me this morning, and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch soon. Okay. All the best. It is uh, 8 to 20 in the morning. We're going to continue with uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's uh, talk on um, the destruction of the first temple for a few minutes and then we will uh, be joined hopefully by Rabbi Harry Moskov right here on JM Sunday. Different. Physically different. And Rabbi say uh, the Jew never fell the same. Little things Our rabbis also say people were different. It says, Botlu posku anshe amonum Yisrael, it says. The Gemara in Sota. There were no longer trustworthy people, right? As long as God was around, so man also. You could find, you could find trustworthy people. But after the Churim Beis Amigdash, that, that was, became very, very difficult to find. The rabbis say that uh, song, music changed, became inferior. There was a type of glass crystal that existed called Schuchis Levono. We don't know what that is, but it was a t- apparently a rare type of crystal that of glass that they knew how to make and that existed and that 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 disappeared. And they had a type of popsicle made out of wine. They called it Yain Korush, frozen wine. That was the delicacy of the world. That also disappeared. The rabbis didn't come here to describe the menu. They didn't come to tell us, you know, these little... They came to tell us that it was a different world. And because it was a different world, then everything has to be seen in that light as a different world. Also, the access to God was different. Uh, previously, there was an easy way out, so to speak. Right? If a person sinned, so he brought a uh, the, the the method of service to God through animal sacrifices through the Beis Hamikdash was foolproof. It was a Beis Hamikdash. There were kohanim. There was a ritual. A person could cleanse himself. A person could come close to God. He could get the appointment. Now we have to rely on prayer. Prayer is a much more difficult route. It requires a great deal more effort on the part of the person, and even when the effort is there, you have no guarantee that the call is ever completed. You have no idea. Mishalma Purim Sfasenu. Our lips become the sacrifice. They become the method of reaching God. 
So on one hand, that's, a, that's exalted. But on the other hand, it is a much more difficult route to travel. And our rabbis therefore compared all sorts of tragedies to the Churban Beis Amigdash. That's not an accidental comparison. Our rabbis say, for instance, that if a, if a person, God forbid, loses a spouse, that that's Kiyom Shechor Beis Amigdash. Why? Because life is never the same afterwards. The person will go on living, the person may even remarry, everything, but it's never the same. That's gone. Our rabbis tell us uh, that, uh, that, that if a person loses a child, so that's, with a, that's, that's a scar that never heals. People live afterwards, people are productive, people even laugh, but that, but that never goes away. It's never the same again. Our rabbis tell us righteous people depart the world. So that's comparable to the Churban Beis Amigdash. Again, what's that idea? It's never the same. Churban Beis Amigdash means it's never the same. It's not, you know, it's not losing the Super Bowl. It's not even losing money. It's, it's never the same. And therefore, that, that was one of the lessons so to speak, that the Churban had to impress itself upon the Jewish people. Our rabbi saw that in relationship to uh, uh, to the creation of the world itself. Uh, I, I discussed with you in the uh, previous tapes when I uh, discussed creation that the uh, rabbi said that God created worlds and destroyed them, created worlds and destroyed them. Uh, the world that we're in now... Uh, is not necessarily the first world, and it may not necessarily have always looked this way. But that there was a process of destruction, and once that destruction occurred, it was never the same again. Things changed, and they changed irrevocably. And the ultimate comparison the rabbis make, the ultimate comparison the rabbis make is to original man, to Odom Arishon, to original man. Original man lived in the Garden of Eden. He was God's protege, so to speak. And he lacked for nothing. And he lived forever. And all human frailties were removed from him. And he knew nothing of the mortal condition which is endemic to all creatures. I think that's a, a, a good thought to stop on for a moment. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine on the uh, topic of the destruction of the first temple. This is uh, JM Sunday. We are live with you on the 10th of Av, which is uh, commemorated and observed with the, um, as we discussed with Rabbi Weinbach before, the the different things uh, from the ninth of Av brought over because uh, the ninth of Av is, was on Shabbos, and we do not uh, we do not have outward displays of mourning on Shabbos, uh, but we do observe and remember what happened thousands of years ago. So we bring that uh, to Sunday, 
to the day after, and that's where we have today. It is, as I also mentioned before, one of the things that is uh, customary not to greet someone and not to say hello when you greet someone in the street because, uh, or anywhere for that matter, because it is just brings to mind the sadness of the day. Uh, in, in a way, it's a little bit different here with my next guest, and I'm happy to say and very happy to say for him, as we'll mention. Uh, my next guest is, in fact, in Israel right now, where it is past the Chatzos. It is after the midday, and uh, my guest is Rabbi Harry Moskov, the author of The Ark Report, a fascinating book which we will, which we spoke about before and we'll talk about now also. Uh, so... Rabbi, I will introduce you by saying that you are on the air and you're able to say what you wish, <laughs> being in Israel. Welcome welcome to the show, right. that I can say. Welcome to the show. That's great. Uh, I appreciate it. Shalom Aleichem. <laughs> I can say that over here. <laughs> I think it's 3.30 p.m. now. That's right. Uh, I would like to uh, also mention and congratulate you, give you a mazel tov, uh, when, the, uh, uh, when the latest uh, plane load of people came to Israel to make Aliyah this year, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, on Nefesh B'Nefesh, you posted that this was your 10th year anniversary of, uh, of making Aliyah, and it happened to be through Nefesh B'Nefesh, and that's, that's just an amazing, amazing thing. Can you imagine 10 years later, the decisions that you had to go through and, and decided on it, and here you are 10 years later? It's amazing. It really is amazing. Uh, a whole bunch of things happened at the same time, actually. And, uh, you know, this was, like I was saying before, this actually, this flight 10 years ago, that was the first Methodist chartered flight that came out of Toronto. Huh. Uh, and so it was a big thing, you know, for them, and of course for us, we had been planning for years, and uh, it was a little bit easier for me because I have some brothers here, actually in Kiryat Sefer, uh, Rabbanim, and they were pressuring me. My wife is also Israeli, uh, born in Israel, so there were certain things that um, I guess for me made it easier. But I always had that dream for many years, and then now we live in a time, Baruch Hashem, we're able, actually able to do it, and I would certainly advise. I have friends coming on that were on that site. I mean, that flight actually 10 years ago was right during the Gus Katif um, mm. event, like all those, the disengagement, unfortunately. And then so, you know, we did in the papers over here in Jerusalem Post and others, uh, big, uh, you know, there's a big sort of advertisements and articles, etc. you know, sort of commemorating that. Um, so for us, it was a very big thing, but it, it proves that that whole flight and others today, other other people even more like sort of braver, I guess you could say, than we were. They come right in the middle. A lot of people came in the middle of the Gaza War, right. the last one, and the one before that. Wow. Uh, Rabbi uh, Weinbach before mentioned uh, when we were talking about uh, our feeling during the day that it should be a meaningful fast and and what it means. We should think about what we have versus what we don't have anymore. We don't have the base on Migdash, of course. Um, and when we were talking about the Kotel, he, he mentioned, and rightly so, that 
you know, we, we pray at a place that is a, basically not to minimize the importance, but it's a retaining wall of a, of a, a, a part of a grounds where the temple stood. It's, it's not any part of the temple itself. And yet that is something that we cling to and look at and, and, uh, go to. And as I mentioned, uh, if, uh, somebody who's not in Israel looks on the, uh, the internet, the uh, Kotel camp, for instance, you can see live images of thousands of people at the hotel. You're there now after 10 years. And, and yes, uh, as I had mentioned before, uh, to him, uh, we, we, it's like we're looking at a, a pretty box that held a precious gift. We don't have the gift. We're only looking at the box. But yet you're there after 10 years of, of feeling, being in Israel and the joy of that. How do you um, take Tisha B'Av and be able to say, we're still missing this? What, what do you put in your mind to, to be able to say that this is still a sad day you know, after 10 years of living there and, and feeling how close you are to the land? Well, the truth is, Eric Israel, I always say this to my friends who are asking me before the flight, we have friends coming from Detroit next week on the Mad Methodist flight, and they say, you know, after the same sort of question, after 10 years, what are, you know, what are your thoughts, etc., in a general way? And I think that what happens is Eric Israel really sort of grows on you. You know, I'm a Canadian originally, I'm from Toronto, and... You know, uh, this is a pretty hot summer. Today's uh, got to be 40 degrees of yesterday, too. It makes it harder to fast, etc. But you get used to it, and you get, you know, it grows on you, and certainly spiritually. A lot of the, like you mentioned, the ARC report, I was saying to my wife yesterday that there's no way that I would have written that book if I was in Toronto. Right. I just wouldn't have done, the, I wouldn't have had the cost and the inspiration to do all that research, being close to the hotel, you know, talking with archaeologists here and the Rabbanim, it's definitely a totally, it's a different level, as, as we know anyway, from the Torah. But here in Israel, you do feel the Kurban much more. There's no question about it. It's just one of those things. You look out your window, like I'm doing now, actually, from my office, and you see Eretz Israel, and we have this great opportunity after almost 2,000 years, and you feel that there is something missing. There is, even though we don't, we're not able to know, in our generation, of course, what we're missing necessarily. We don't really can't get a feel of the godless of the base of Nikdash, what it was in the Korbanot. But what we can feel, though, is a little bit about how, you know, a bit of a longing, a bit of a longing there. Like, if we go to the hotel, and, and I'll give you, a, I'll say over a story, a little story. It might have something that happened to me. I was there at the hotel about a year ago, and there was this uh, Ethiopian man there, and he was cleaning up the hotel, you know, putting water on the floor, washing out the the crevices, etc. And he, he, you know, we started a conversation. We just started talking, as people often do over there, Askaka Pratis. And he said, and he was almost on the verge of tears. He said, I, and I, I thought I had more of a catcher, you know, but this is a man who seemed like a simple type of person, a very nice person. And he was almost crying, saying, look at the air. He sees the, the Arabs and the tourists going up there every day. And we're, we're Nebuch. We're at the bottom of the wall, of the retaining wall, like you mentioned. And there's the other people that get to go up to the, to, you know, to Harabayat, Mamas, to ascend to, to the holiest place on earth. Right. Uh, that, that still affects me today when I think about that. Like, he was so taken by it, it affected me. Like, wow, he's right. 
Wow. So for those for those of us who are not in Israel now, we think of it as something that has been longed for for 2,000 years. Being in Israel, you do absolutely feel it even more uh, strongly. I, I, this is such a, um, it's a comparison I'm about to make that is far, you know, for a real comparison. But those who live in the United States, for instance, certainly those who live in New York City, and who were around 15 years ago know what it was like when the Twin Towers were destroyed and they came down. Sure. And those who That's saw great. that destruction, it took 15 years or so later for a new Freedom Tower to be built. And again, La Havdil, you know, the comparison is not even close. But in terms of the psyche, in terms of the physical, the vision, you know, if you take that and if you experience that, you can only imagine more so... Uh, what happened 2,000 years ago, the people that were there fighting in the streets, in those places where you are walking every day, and saw the destruction of the base, which wasn't just a building, but it was the representation of where Hashem, where God was uh, on earth, so to speak, um, and, and, and with us every single day. And I can only imagine that the span of 2,000 years is, is uh, you know, an eternity of, uh, of hoping, as we do every single day for the building of the new temple. That's right. I actually I actually wrote something. I write now, actually, for the uh, Jerusalem Post. I'm a columnist there and a blogger, as well as the Times of Israel. I just started last week with them. And uh, one of the columns that I wrote, uh, and, and your audience uh, can actually look it up if they wish, it's called, uh, Were There Temples? Uh, were There... Oh, actually, I think the name was synagogue on the Temple Mount, or a house of <laughs> right. prayer on the Temple Mount. And um, I, I mentioned it because I, I read this fascinating research, and I found out that there were actually six, since the destruction of the Baishani, there were six uh, small synagogues, I guess you could say, shuls that were put up on Haramayit. And I, I indicate over there which when it happened and how it happened, and how actually, even in our days, of Mordecai Liao, he wanted to put uh, a little structure there, I think on the southeastern corner, right. before the building of this uh, mosque in Solomon's Stables that the, that the Muslims put in there. But uh, these things happened, and after the destruction of the base of Niktas, you had the Bar Kokhba revolt, two, two of them actually, and then you had, you know, people were really, there's even a Mandama, I think it's in Sakhim, says that uh, Rabbi Akiva wanted to bring a, a Korban Pesach, or he maybe did bring one, after the, the uh, Korban Abayat, you know, where the new still where the Makomi's death was. So people have been at least trying, over, over this is many centuries ago, but it's not completely out of the question. There have been attempts to do it, just, of course, recently, politically, and definitely in the past, you know, 200 years, 300 years, we haven't seen anything like that, but uh, there are people that really take steps to put it into action, you know, back then. Now it's, of course, it's because that is, it's, right. it's not really possible. We don't know. Uh, so uh, I, I honestly hope that books like like the Ark Report do inspire people to at least find out about where these places were, with permissible places, the permissible places, the places that are out there, and then uh, can lead a, a chuka. Right, absolutely. Uh, to refresh your memory, the article appeared in the Jerusalem Post, uh, I believe, in March of this year. Uh, you titled it "A Synagogue on the Temple Mount" or uh, part of your blog. And, yeah, and if it weren't if it weren't uh, uh, Tishabov, and and we could be a little bit more uh, 
you know, lighthearted, it would be the the ultimate question of what there's shuls on the Temple Mount. What, you know, I mean, the irony of that in a way, looking at things nowadays. But that's, that's right. for that's for another discussion. Uh, but uh, yes, and and again, I'm referring to our discussion I had before with Rabbi Weinbach. He mentioned that what you just said that uh, subsequent years to the destruction of the Second Temple, there were some uh, attempts to do certain things. He called it almost like housekeeping events, uh, you know, trying to do certain carbonas or certain you know uh, services right. that that would be uh, would have been allowed at the time. My guest is Rabbi Harry Moskov, uh, author of the Ark Report, um, that talks about uh, the uh, different. Uh, 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 objects that were in the base Hamigdash that uh, we don't have nowadays, but maybe they're out there someplace where uh, uh, where where people could could get them. Maybe they're around. What prompted you specifically to to delve into this topic and uh, to come up with uh, a book? And it was a film also of. Uh, of the search, if you will, of the locations of certain things. I mean, the book, by the way, is fascinating. Let me just tell people uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's called The Ark Report, Harry Moskov. Uh, what prompted you to to start on this endeavor? Well, I think there were three things. Number one, of course, my own, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you could say obsession, but uh, passion, definitely, <laughs> with... Um, it started off with where the Makoma Mikdas was, and this is going back 20 years already, and uh, the different theories about where the temples were placed on Harabayit and why. And I was doing all this for myself and Akilah with the white paper. I was just fascinated by it. I mean, uh, I don't know if it has to do with uh, being a Kohen, and my mother's also a Kohen, and my wife is a Kohen, but oh. Kohen, and <laughs> surrounded. But I think that I was inspired by uh, my own, I, I think even as a child growing up, I was very much into this idea of, uh, you know, sort of um, temple treasures and things that are holy and that could elevate the world today and, and where they might be. And I was fascinated by it. And then, I, as you said, I made a film later on. Once I got everything together and I got some uh, endorsements, actually the book itself is endorsed now by... Uh, presidential candidate, Mike Huckabee. Yes, very impressive. Which um, really uh, adds a lot to the publicity, obviously. Right. But there are a lot of people, the number two reason is that there's a lot of people that really need, I found, and when I lecture, etc., people that are curious about this type of stuff. Now, you have the other movies like Da Vinci Code and all this type of symbolism, and you have people that are... They may not be religious necessarily, but they're definitely curious as to this like end of day scenario, and they want. I find that people want uh, they want hope in the future. You know that there's going to be a good future for Israel, and where these politicians come in and uh, that I interviewed in the Ark Report, they're very. A lot of them, well, all of them actually, are, are very pro-Israel. So it's good. The other, the the second thing is that I found that uh, I had this desire to really inspire people that Israel has a, a great and bright future. And it's sort of like Hasbara, you know, good Hasbara, good PR for Israel, the Rock Report and uh, Moscow Media, a lot of the projects that we do. And it helps influence people, not just Jewish people, uh, the, you know, evangelists, there's all kinds of um, people out there, you know, faith-based, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. that are very uh, pro-Israel. They, they, they like this type of material. They feel like they can come here and be a part of it. I think the third reason why I tried to embark on this type of project 
is that I just once coming to Israel, I felt like I wanted to make a ripple. I wanted to make a difference, you know. Here we are. I, I don't know when the last time of my friends from Nebuchadnezzar said this to, to us when we came here. If you think about the last time someone in your family was living in Israel, go back. Right. Go back. You know, for me, it's going back to Ukraine after, you know, 100 years, and then we were there for who knows how long in Russia and Ukraine. Before that, I don't know. But uh, I know that we were Kohanim. But, <laughs> but uh, you go back, and when was the last time, you know, where your family lived? Who knows? You know, it's, it's so it's such an incredible uh, proof of Hashem's existence in a way, and there's a skacha on, on the Yiddin, on the Jewish people. Right. It gives the. So I wanted to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You you presented that very well, and in the uh, you know in the book, it is fascinating, and I, I so encourage people to read it because, yeah. You know, some of the things read like a science fiction story, truthfully. When you're talking about uh, the uh, the energy of the, um, uh, what was it? Where, where did I? Uh, you, you're gonna have to. You know the book better than I. <laughs> I only read it through once. But you're talking about the energy of the actual uh, Teva, the Ark. Uh, you're talking about, uh, like you just referenced, that where is the location? We assume that the location of the base, I mean, just the actual spot, is in one place. You have a very good theory that it may be a little bit different than what we think none of this is uh, you know just a uh, a thick a work of fiction this is based on on fact this is based on our learnings uh, over the centuries Uh, and it it is um, I think great hope to read something like this because as you said uh, it gives people a sense of what we we have it gives people a sense of what we lost uh, and it gives people the hope of what can come in in the future which is uh, you know is is amazing you mentioned also certain shows and other people's uh, ideas of what um, and their interest in Judaism their interest in Israel yes we know that there's the evangelical community which is very much interested in this maybe for certain own reasons and ideas of what they see the future will be but it is just fascinating to me that that the, the the irony is it is so tied into our history and what we have and what we right. had and and you know to have like you mentioned you mentioned you know the the different yeah. um, the different uh, um, uh, movies again you know the Raiders the Lost Ark the Fame right. it, ha- right. it has to do right. with the it has to do with the the the, the Ark and the, the base of Migdash that was ours this isn't uh, right. you know it's it, I mean it's so ironic. Again, if this weren't um, uh, it's tissue, true. It, again, if for this, me, it's, uh, yeah. it, it's one of those things that people like I that I had to. It's one of the things I'm saying electric tonight about, and I had to qualify it for saying. You know, like you mentioned that um, it's true. There's uh, the arc has a certain, I guess, power, supernatural. You know, whatever way you want to put it for mm-hmm. the for the going like for people in general that, that aren't familiar with the Torah necessarily. And they want to, you know, they want to be fascinated. Like, they call me, you know, the quote-unquote dark expert. Right. So I, I have to qualify by saying, this is not a book that I would put into the call-out. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like it's, for every, it, it's, it's for everybody. Like, for right. everybody. It's, you know, it's got the right sources. It, it does have uh, a lot of, obviously, you of know, course. it's based on the Midrash here, and it's uh, everything I could I could put in there to, to a degree. Right. But... Having said that, it's not it's not like it needs Geniza or anything like that. Of course. You know, it has to I wanted to inspire people and We don't know all yeah. the secrets of what actually went on 
as you said, you're a Kohen. You can trace your history back to the Kohanim that were at the uh, at the in the base of Mikdash. But we don't know everything that actually went on. We don't know all of what Hashem put there. It, you know, we just have a, a bit of knowledge of that, and it awaits the third temple. It, again, if um, this were a different day, and uh, you mentioned different shows, I, I would ask you about the. Uh, the TV show series that was on uh, a number of months ago sure. called The Dig, which uh, was quite a fascinating uh, show. I mean, there was a lot of reality in terms of, uh, uh, although because of the fighting, apparently it was filmed in another country or some of it at least. But yeah. uh, but uh, again, it's a, it's a sh- that that was the um, crux of uh, of the. Um, the, the the premise of the show the the plot all had to do with the the end days the base on Migdash, the you know what what would happen and That's right. and uh, given the world's um, feeling about Israel you know when we talk about uh, we always talk about the BDS movement you know the boycott movements the the anti-Israel movements and yet. Uh, People are extremely fascinated by this very thing. You'd think that they would say, "Oh, we don't want to touch it." But uh, again, we'll save that. We have to save that for another conversation. Maybe after the summer, we can, you know, we can talk again about these things. Sure. Uh, and I'd like, to, I'd love to find out, you know, your involvement with that, uh, with that show. I, I, I think you met a few people from there. Yeah, that was amazing. Uh, I'm sure. But let's, let's. We have a few minutes left here, and I would like you, if you don't mind, to give us a, a bit of a, a synopsis. You will be giving a, a class a little bit later on today. Uh, I'd like you to tell us where that's going to be, and it's specifically, I believe, the title is The Three Temples. And when I mentioned it uh, before getting off the air with Rabbi Weinbach, he said, oh, so which third temple is he talking about? The one from Yechazka, the one for this. So wh- where is this tonight for those listeners who are in Israel right now? And what is the synopsis of that uh, class you'll be giving? Okay. First of all, it's at Tiran uh, Ramat Chemis. And it's on the whole Tiberia, Tiberia Street. Uh, and it's a shul called Pilsno, which is a very, um, it's, it's one of the biggest shuls in the community. And, uh, it's at six o'clock, right an hour before Mincha or so. And everyone, of course, it's for men and women. And it's actually the third in a series that I've, that I've given. And, uh, it's basically about this particular one where we, Normally we do, we sort of tie it into current events and we go chapter by chapter by in the book, the art report. This particular, the last, it's built as a last, unless they want me to do another one. <laughs> but this one will be how the uh, three temples are connected and what we have to look forward to. So as a summary, first of all, I'll answer what uh, Weinbach was saying. In a certain sense, it's really the fourth temple, because we've already had three temples. We had the Bayes Yishon with Shlomo Melech, which was actually expanded by Yehoshaphat about 150 years or so, uh, around there afterwards. Uh, The the Ezra Nashim was uh, expanded by him, but it's still called the first temple. Then you had Ezra Nehemiah that rebuilt the second temple, the Bayes Shani. Then you had the Maccabees that built it, uh, also expanded it on Harabite. And then you had the Herodian Temple, which could actually be called the Third Temple, a hundred years before it was destroyed, which really was the greatest of all of them. Like it says in the Pasuk, that uh, it says a Baita Acharon will be the, the biggest and the best. It's really referring to the Hezbollah Temple, which is known as the Third Temple, but uh-huh. that will really, really be the biggest by far. Right. Um, in fact, the courtyard is six million square feet. But... 
which brings a question about the topography of Harabayat, how that's going to change, the Manchester, Zachariah, etc. But that's a different conversation. As a summary for, for what I'm going to speak about in this, um, it's basically dealing with the Rambam, of course, uh, base of the Chira. And the question is, why the Aaron Kodesh isn't brought with the other Kalim in the Hilkos Kleya Mikdash? Why is it brought in the Hilkos base of the Chira? We're talking about the Geniza, etc. Right, interesting. And the reason why, basically, yeah, it is interesting. It's, it's, it's based on a couple of things. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Shalom, he wrote about it, and some other uh, later, Chlorine uh, wrote about this topic. It's very, very interesting. But basically, uh, it's not called, the, the, the Eskama is, it's not really called a Bayit, unless it has the Aron. In other words, you know, we call it the Bayit Shani, and, and the Rambam brings out a big, long package, uh, uh, passage there in Perak Ravi, in the fourth Perak, about the Gedizat Aron, and the reason why it's there in Beit Rakhira, not in Kleamikdash, because the Aron Akodesh itself has to do with the Tsuratabite, with the very blueprint, when it talks about, okay, the Mishkan, and the, by three sons, Shani and Shishi, they all have their home, they have the Kodesh, and then they need a Kodesh Kodeshim, and an Ulam, um, that's what Makhluk is actually what the Ulam really means, but right. that's okay, and these Bayas, etc. Uh, but the Aron of Bris and the Kodesh Kodashim, that's what makes it into a Surat Abayat. Like it says, uh, that means the Beit Hashem. What makes it into a Beit Hashem? That the Aron has to be a Chelek, a real part and parcel of the Kodesh Kodashim itself. And that's just the Kli. And that's what's going to make the Mikdash the Shemut. So, and, and Netzach, etc. And the reason why all three are connected, as I was saying in my book, is because when Yeshiyahu Melech says, put it in the house, he's talking about that chamber underneath, directly underneath uh, where the Karnaskadoshim is, which I've seen in, in my theory there, that it's not where the Dome of the Rock is, it's actually removed to closer to, to where the Kotel is, right. in an open area. But you see it in other things, like they were in the Tulim, there was also in the Bayashini, but they just didn't respond. And uh, there, there are other examples of things that appeared that will connect all three temples, but they, they were there in some form. Like the iron is there, but it's not there. It's, it's underneath, you know, you still have the sprinkling of the blood on Yom Kippur, Ben Abadim, it says, in the Makom, and Yuma, there's a mission there, it says he, the Kongadol stood where he stood, and he, he was, you know, sort of Kuvan, even though it's directly underneath, that Aaron Abris was actually there. Um, and you see it even in other things like Chesamation, which hopefully will be at the right time soon, that uh, everything starts with the lose, it says. Like, the, it's not, the, the body isn't uh, reincarnated from nothing. It starts from the lose. Right. And then it, and then it uh, expands from there. It's the same thing when the Bayashini comes, you need something to start. You need Etchem. Just like that bone is etzem, you need the etzem in this case, and the etzem of the base of definitely according to the Ramban, which is saying the Iker is is the Nuchata Shina. So that etzem is the uh, is the Aron Abris. So it has to be there today. It has to be in a room. You know, they made an actual golden room for it. And um, and I'll end with this, I guess, without giving away everything. Right. <laughs> Come to the Shir. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say. Um, you know, all those hundreds of years where you have people looking on, searching for the Arna, Arna Kodesh, right? Yes. You have everybody from the Knights Templar <laughs> right. to the Crusaders to, uh, you know, everybody uh, you can imagine that, that 
overtook Eretz Israel, including 150 years ago, Charles Warren, yeah. uh, with the Palestinian uh, Palestine Exploration Fund, I think it was called. Yes. Anyway, they're all looking for this chest, like you said, this box, this golden box. But really, what they should be looking for is an actual chamber itself, a room. Right. That's what Shalom Melech actually made, and with walls and and you know tiled with gold. And uh, I won't get into. Uh, I can talk about this all day. Right, right. No, <laughs> but, I know. Uh, Right. You know, it's actually making me feel better. I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to. <laughs> it's making me feel better. I'm Well, I, I would, by the way, um, I would say that, that everything you're discussing, uh, absolutely has, and again, you're a Cohen, uh, is, is, um, is, are pl- plans for what will happen when the base of Mikdash is rebuilt. So if it, if it were to happen in the next hour, uh, you have to be prepared. So this is know. learning about it. You know, uh, that's, that's, that's fine. I'm sure. That's, that's my non rabbinical opinion. I love, about, uh, <laughs> I love that about your show. It's great. It's so, you know, looking to the future and you yeah. yourself in that way, Matt. Uh, I appreciate it. It's, it's a great Sure. Experience. By the way, will your, um, have your lectures been um, uh, uh, recorded? The last few ones and tonight. Um, the big ones that I did internationally in Toronto and uh, New Shrine, okay at the youth center and other ones. Those are recorded. Those are videoed. But this one tonight will be. Yeah, we'll have it. It's supposed to be on MP3 at least. Uh, and so I, I may put it up on my uh, Facebook page, the Arc Report page, or another. We'll see maybe at the the Shul site. Please, please let me yeah, know, and, and we'll we'll post it on our page also. We're about to wrap up with the okay. show with, uh, even though it's it's Tisha B'Av, whenever there's a JM the AM show or or our JM Sunday show, we still open up with our Modaani song and we close with Hatikva every single day of the year that we were on, which we will do in just a few seconds. Uh, I wanted wow. to, uh, yeah, I wanted to thank you for joining us. How can people get in touch with you, and and do you, or, do you have plans for coming to the U.S. soon for a a, a, a tour, if you will. Sure. That would be great. If they want to contact me, uh, you could do it through the Facebook page. Most, A lot of people do, do that, like uh, going to the Arc Report uh, Facebook fan page. Okay. Yeah, they uh, can message me there. Or you can get me on LinkedIn as well. It has my email over there. Great. Uh, actually, I can, I, can give you, since it's, I can give you an email address. Since this is a, a Jewish show, it's got a good reputation <laughs> um, and, a, and a wide audience, thank God. But, uh, you can get me at Harry, H-A-R-R-Y, at Moskos, M-O-S as in Sam, K-O-F-F as in Frank, dash media. It's Moskos-media.com. Excellent. Again, I want to thank you. I wish for you a meaningful rest of the fast as i know it will be and hopefully we will be able to uh join with you again when uh things are being when, when all the permits are uh are up for the new base amigdash and uh and uh you know we'll um we will uh meet with meet up with you then uh but also you know if it happens before that I'd like to have I'd like to have you on the air in the next uh, month or two, and we can talk about some other things. Again, thank you very much for joining Super. me this morning, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So have a good time. Thank you, okay. Rabbi Bye. Harry Moskoff, uh, author of the Ark Report. Thank you for joining us here this morning. We're going to finish up, uh, as I said, with Hatikva. We're finishing up here in the background, and. Um, 
programming continues all day long on the uh, stream here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Nachum will be on tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. with JM and the AMA, a regular, non-three weeks, non-tish above, uh, not even a, a, a tenth of our program because uh, almost everything finishes tonight after the Tanis is over, after the fest is over, except I think there's a restriction. Some people won't eat meat until tomorrow. Some people won't have wine until tomorrow. Have a meaningful rest of the day, and we'll be back here next Sunday on JM Sunday.